It's 835, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. This literally is. I, I put the show together. I start putting the show together late in, in the evening. So last night, I don't know, 10, 11, 1130, I, I'm starting to put the show together. And I was thinking, boy, there's a lot of really good stuff. And so I get up early this morning and I start like updating to see if stuff happened overnight. And I keep saying there, there's even more really good stuff. So I'm here to tell you, today's going to be a good program from beginning to end. We start off today's show like we start off every show. Three big things. Big story number one. Ed Flynn is at it again. The failing politically motivated police chief of Milwaukee looking for excuses. And in fairness, I, I don't think I don't think you can blame a police chief for crime problems in a community necessarily. I, I don't think Flynn makes it any better by his steadfast refusal, for example, not to allow Milwaukee police officers to chase fleeing people as a general rule. I think that's encouraged um, the, the outbreak of lawlessness. It's led to a lack of, I, I think um, I think it's hurt morale on the police force. Um, I, I think his policies with, regarding to, with regard to community-oriented policing have the, the whole broken windows theory, I think, have been disappointing. I think his willingness to essentially be a toady to the mayor when it comes to certain political issues has been disappointing as well. But I I don't, as a general rule, know that it's fair to say, gee, the reason you have an explosion in auto thefts or the explosion in violence is necessarily because of the police chief, because police are, as a general rule, they are reactive. I mean, what the police do is they're out there there's clearly a deterrent effect. You know, you, you want to have a police presence so people don't commit crimes. But, you know, bottom line is somebody commits a crime. That's when the cops end up showing up. All right. So I, I want to cut him a little slack there. But th- this is the politically motivated Ed Flynn who just every time he opens his mouth on this issue demonstrates his absolute and total cluelessness. Now, over the weekend, th- this this they, they call them community leaders. It was this sort of lefty conference, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, where you know we have all the touchy-feely approach. They, they get together, and they talk about you know ways that you can make Milwaukee better, and you know the conversation is essentially, well, let's, you know, let, let's concentrate on problem-oriented policing. And problem-oriented policing is essentially saying, if you have hardcore criminals in the community, what you do is you whistle them into a community meeting, and you have people in the community tell them, gee, you're plaguing our community. So, Mr. Gangbangers, you know, we'd really appreciate you close up that, that drug house. It is, it's the latest kind of touchy-feely thing. Like I say, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But anyhow, um, you know, Flynn starts talking about the, the whole issue of, of crime in the city of Milwaukee. And as has been the case before. Flynn gets around to talking about the concealed carry law. Somebody asks him a question, um, do you think Wisconsin's concealed carry law contributes to the overwhelming amount of the unreasonable amount of violence in Milwaukee? This is the concealed carry law, to which Ed Flynn responds, it does, because only convicted felons are barred from permits so-called human holsters with cleaner records hold guns for big-time drug dealers. So his his premise is that you have, for example, all these gangsters who have associates who get concealed carry permits 
who then walk around with the gangsters following how, holding the guns, and give the guns to the gangsters to use. Right? That's, that's what he's saying with a straight face. He says, concealed carry is an irresponsible law passed by irresponsible legislatures who are more interested in ideological points of view. And I'd sure as hell like some more community outrage about that because that's what drive, is driving the violence in the city. And too many public officials are silent on it. Let me read that statement. Concealed carry is an irresponsible law passed by irresponsible legislatures who are more interested in ideological points. And I'd sure as hell like some more community outrage about that because that's what's driving the violence in the city. And too many public officials are silent on it. The head of the police union, Mike Ravello, challenges Flynn. Um, I've never had a conversation with you, Chief, relative to you displaying that we are arresting an overwhelming amount of people or even one person that's committed a crime while carrying a CCW permit, to which Flynn, again, whenever he's challenged, the thin-skinned Ed Flynn says, well, I'm forbidden to tell the public when a CCW permit holder breaks the law. I'm forbidden by statute. Well, okay, the DA's office isn't. The DA's could charge that. And this is just, it is a... It is a red herring. It is a Trojan horse. But I want to tee this up. Ed Flynn says the concealed carry law, the law that lets thousands of you legally carry a concealed firearm if you go through the proper procedures, that this is an irresponsible law passed by irresponsible politicians more interested in ideological points, and um, it is driving violence in this city. 414-799-1620, 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I will start off. I think this is one of the most stunningly stupid comments ever to come out of the mouth of the chief of police. And I, I'm, I'm not saying Ed Flynn is stupid. I am saying this is a stupid comment to blame concealed carry laws on the outbreak and the epidemic of violence in Milwaukee is absolutely, in my opinion, ridiculous. And I think the challenge to the chief should be working with John Chisholm, put up or, or shut up. I mean, if it's really, if there, if there really is this enormous number of concealed carry permits, and by the way, pretty much every time there is an incident with a concealed carry holder, that is featured prominently in the local media. Concealed carry permit holder shoots up this or that. It almost never happens. Ed Flynn knows it almost never happens, and yet he is, I don't know, trolling this particular party line, whether it is an effort to try to deflect blame or just an effort to curry favor with Tom Barrett. But let's tee this up. 414-799-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Ed Flynn says the concealed carry law is, quote, unquote, what is driving the violence in this city and that we need community outrage. What do you think? It's 842. This is Jeff Wagner. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. 414-799-1620 is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss. Eight forty six, Jeff Wagner, six twenty, WTMJ, the division leading brewers continue their road trip tonight in Cincinnati. Jeff and Lane are live from Great American Ballpark and begin our coverage of the Brewers Reds at five thirty five this evening, sponsored by Catholic Financial Life. Well, this 
This is a doozy. Ed Flynn shows up at one of these community conferences where we're going to be touchy-feely and talk about, hey, let's all get around and sing Kumbaya to deal with crime. And he goes off on this riff on concealed carry holders. It's an irris- This is concealed carry. It's an irresponsible law passed by irresponsible legislators who are more interested in ideological points, to which I would say, Ed, pot, kettle, meat, kettle. Um, and I'd sure as hell like some more community outrage about it because that's what's driving the violence in this city. And too many public officials are silent about it. Concealed carry permit holders, Ed Flynn seriously suggests that is what is driving violence in the city of Milwaukee. So those of you who have obtained concealed carry permits over the last five years, how do you feel about being told that you are what is driving violence in the city of Milwaukee? Let's start with Dan in Milwaukee. Dan, you're first. Good morning. Good morning. Well, I mean, I think that's absolutely ridiculous. I'm a concealed carry holder myself. Mm -hmm. I walk around armed everywhere I go, and I've yet to use it. But then you've got people that aren't concealed carry holders, using illegal weapons, but we're... but we're the problem. Right, right, exactly. I mean, so it's, all right, you, look, in, in the city of Milwaukee, let us be real. You have multiple felons who've had their wrists slapped or out on the street. They are continuing to commit crimes. They are not legally allowed to have access to guns. They have guns. They are the problem. And this this notion that, gee, you have people getting concealed carry permits and walking around sharing the guns with the gangsters, you, you wonder I mean, I, I understand Ed Flynn just says this stuff, and then when somebody challenges him, he gets his back up and gets aggressive. But you, you wonder, does he seriously believe this stuff? Is he high? What is, what is he thinking of, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, right. It, it's, like, it, it's like he's trying to, to save his job or something because crime is doing nothing but going up. He's doing absolutely nothing to protect the city. Well, well, right, I mean, think, look, I mean, there, there is a look. If you want to point, if you want to have a conversation about all the reasons you've got all the shootings and all the crimes of violence and all the things that are going on, I, I think there's all sorts of things you can point at. But Barrett and Flynn are fixated, and, and see, it's easy. It's the, one of the reasons he goes after concealed carry without any evidence at all is the fact that, that then he doesn't have to sh- shoulder any of the blame. It's not my fault. It's it's that you've got these irresponsible legislators who are letting law-abiding citizens carry guns. Huh? And there's a complete and total disconnect. But again, because this is what some in the media like, and this is what some at some of these community outreach things like to hear, it's not our fault. We don't have to, you know, we don't have to blame the justice system. We would not have the spate of shootings and carjackings if if it weren't for concealed carry. And don't dare, don't you ask me to provide any sort of statistics about this. Um, let's see, Mitch and Sturgeon Bay writes, I suppose it's us ideologues that own cars that's causing all the carjackings, too. Yeah, that's exactly it. That is the same sort of analogy. Hey, all you people who drive those nice cars in the city of Milwaukee, well, you're, you're, it's your fault. You're the ones that are causing... Um, you're the one that's causing all the problems. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Like I say, this is one of the most stunningly stupid comments that I have ever heard coming out of the mouth of a public official. And I get it that this is we're parroting the party line. But when Flynn says stuff like this, he makes himself look ridiculous and 
to borrow the line from the Godfather, guys who are in positions like him, like the chief of police, can't afford to be made to look ridiculous. But this is Ed Flynn making himself look ridiculous. Steve in Brookfield. Steve, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Hi, Steve. It's uh, liberal ideology and the touchy-feely catch-and-release of the gangbangers and and all that type of stuff that they're doing in Milwaukee that has actually caused me to go and get a concealed carry license. I fear for myself sometimes, and this is what I've been forced to do because of that mentality. Yeah, and and you, but you, Steve, are the problem. Don't you realize that you're you are you are the reason why you've got shootings and carjackings and all these type of assaultive things. Now, how you get from you making the decision do you need the gun to protect yourself to you being the problem, Lord only knows. But that's just in the mind of Ed Flynn, I guess. You know, it's it's really sad. It really is that it's it's come to this, and I wish I wouldn't have. Right. No, it makes you know your cell phone just cut out there. Well, right, it, it is, but this is, our again, I, I think, for example, you know, the, the the standard mantra: it's not our fault. You know, Tom Barrett and, and Ed Flynn, who don't have the guts to call out judges or the DAs when you have ridiculous decisions that are made on sentencing or charging, but it, it's the blame Madison thing. It's not our fault. You know, Madison needs tougher gun laws. Okay, you know, we, we should there should be mandatory minimum penalties. And by the way, I don't disagree. I mean, I, I have no problem. If you want to put a mandatory minimum penalty that says you commit a crime with a firearm, you go to jail for five years, no parole, I'm cool with that. I have no problem with that a, at all. But let us be honest. That is not the reason why you have crime problems in the city of Milwaukee. You already have, you know, for almost every crime that's committed, you almost ha- always have a-, a judge that can send somebody to prison for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and they choose not to do it. You, you don't need more laws. But to, to go after concealed carry holders and the politicians like this, it's an irresponsible law passed by irresponsible legislators. Well, I think the irresponsibility is Ed Flynn opening his mouth and talking like this. Might have been appealing to the people in that room, but beyond that, it doesn't track with reality. Um, it is an irresponsible law passed by irresponsible legislators who are more interested in ideological points. Like I say, pot, meat, kettle. And I sure as hell like some more community outrage about that because that's what's driving violence in this city. <laughs> God, I mean, really? That's what's driving violence in this city? Molly and Oconomowoc. Molly, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hey, good morning. We lived in Milwaukee up until the time I graduated UWM, and I left the city now for probably 30 years. And we've just returned to the area, and we live in Oconomowoc, but... Heading into Milwaukee, my husband and I have both entertained the thought of um, not only purchasing a gun, but learning, of course, how to use sure. it, and then um, getting a concealed carry permit. And honestly, during your entire conversation here, as a citizen, I would feel a whole lot safer going into the city, wherever we're headed, knowing that we're packing, mm-hmm. to be totally honest with you, and how we would be part of the problem. Yeah. Somebody's smoking something funny. Yeah, well, right, exactly. And, and see, Molly, I actually think you're going about it exactly the right way because, like, years ago when I worked in the attorney's office, and I've told the story before, I carried a gun for a couple of years just because of death threats. But, you know, the condition was, yeah, I had to, I had to 
go through training, and I had to prove I could shoot to use it. So, I mean, that would be my advice to you as well. I mean, if you decide to get the gun, you want to make darn sure you know how to use it if you make that decision. But, yeah, I wasn't the problem. You're not the problem. And the truth is concealed carry holders aren't the problem as to why you've got all the gun violence going on in the city of Milwaukee. It's just it's unfortunate. It's this kind of, I don't know, it's a stalking horse for the chief of police. And it's just it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate. Hey, thanks for calling. Oh, go ahead. Yep. No, I was going to say, having been away from the city for almost 30 years and now returning, my husband did not grow up here, but of course I did. And I'm shocked at not only the level of violence, but honestly, I'm concerned about coming into the city just for simple things like dining and going to movies on the east side of town. It's it's a real shame. No, it it is a real shame. Thanks. I mean, I've... I've commented on this, and I understand there's some people in the city that um, don't like it when I say these things, but I, I grew up here. Okay, I, I, I've, I have essentially lived here since I was 10 years old, um, with a couple of years away to go to college or things like that, and, and I, I've watched the way the city has changed. And we've talked about this in many respects. You know, it used to be there were always a couple high-crime areas that you'd figure, okay, you, you probably don't want to go through or you don't want to be there after dark. Well, now that, that crime, those, those high-crime areas or the randomness, it, it's spreading to the point that, you know, we – you have situations where you're using some of the major east-west thoroughfares, for example, to get from the North Shore out to Oconomowoc or Waukesha, short of the freeway, and you're having one story after another. And again, I, I think we have to have an honest dialogue about this. But what is so aggravating is when you have the chief of police that decides that this is what's going to get him upset. Don't blame me for my chase policy. Don't blame me for not being aggressive on broken windows. Don't blame me for the the lack of police that we have on the streets. Don't blame my mentor. Don't blame um, you know the, the guy that's been been helping me out, Tom Barrett. Don't blame us for any of this. Let's blame concealed carry holders. Huh. Eight fifty six. Jeff Wagner, six twenty. WTMJ. Big thing number two is coming up. Do gay rights trump everybody else's rights? No pun intended. Stick around. It's 9.08. This is Jeff Wagner. We're right in the middle of our three big things. Big thing number two. If you haven't heard of the Masterpiece Cake Shop, trust me, you will. Let me back into this story. Um, last month, when I had one of those zero-year birthdays, uh, my girlfriend went out, and you remember this, Hondo, had two cakes made for me. It was actually it was the same cake made twice, um, one that she brought into the office here that we shared with everybody and one for uh, a party that she and some of my friends put on for me later on that evening. But it was this big sheet cake, and it was... It didn't just say happy birthday, Jeff, on it. It was it was personalized. It had like it had like an image of me and it had golf clubs and it had an image of my dog, Sasha. And and it was it was a personalized thing. It wasn't just, you know, happy birthday, Jeff. It was it was personalized. And and the whoever did the decorations did it twice. It was it was very cool. But it was a personalized type of cake. All right. Big story number two. Masterpiece Cake Shop. You will hear this term a lot over the next year and a half. The issue is, do gay rights outweigh rights of everybody else? Here's the story. The Supreme Court yesterday surprised some people and agreed that it would hear the following case. Case is going to be argued sometime in the fall. 
Um, they, they've had this case pending for quite a while, and a lot of people thought they just were going to duck it and not take it, but, but they decided to take the case. And in order to take the case, that means at least a certain number of justices feel that there is merit. Okay, here is what happened. 2012, there's a, a guy who runs Little Cake Store in Colorado. He's a, he's, a, he's a baker. His name is Jack Phillips. Small, small bake shop. And two um, gay men, Charles Craig and David Mullins, go into the cake shop. Now, I believe at the time, same-sex marriage wasn't legal in Colorado, but it was in Massachusetts. So they were planning to be married in Massachusetts. But they say, hey, we're going to have a wedding reception that's going to be held in Colorado, and we want you to bake a cake for us, um, celebrating our, our same-sex wedding. Now, Mr. Phillips, this is the guy at Masterpiece Cake, says, says no. He said, look, I, I, will, I will bake you any type of, of baked item you want. You want cookies. You want bread. You, you want, you know, stuff that, that's fine. You know, anything that you want. But because of my religious beliefs, I simply do not believe that, you know, same-sex marriage is, is right. And I believe that I, I just, I think it is wrong for me. I believe that I promote something I believe sincerely is wrong by doing the cake. You know, in addition, he says, hey, there, there's other there's other holidays. There's other things that he, he won't bake cakes for. For example, he, he won't create goods that contain references to alcohol or to celebrate Halloween, as well as he, he won't do cakes that, you know, promote, you know, ageism or racism or atheism. So, I mean, he's got these various deeply held personal and religious beliefs. And he says, I'm just, I'm not going to, I think this is wrong. I'm not going to do it. Now, this couple could have gone to almost any bakery in Colorado and gotten the cake. As a matter of fact, you know, once the story became public, they, they went almost down the street and got another baker to make exactly the cake they wanted, and, and they got it for free. But what they do is they then go and they file a complaint with the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, saying Colorado is one of these states that says you can't discriminate against people based on sexual orientation. And they say, hey, this guy is discriminating against us. He's refusing to make a cake for our our wedding. Um, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission finds against the guy, against the baker, uh, he was ordered to make cakes for homosexual newlyweds. He's ordered to file reports for two years to show that he was abiding by anti-discrimination laws. He was also ordered to re-educate himself and his staff when it comes to discrimination. I think there was a fine as well, but I'm not positive of that. So he ends up appealing this. He says, wait a second here. He said, I didn't refuse them service. I just refuse to make them this particular cake because I believe that this is is wrong. And he said, look, this is said, in my opinion, he's arguing, look, I am when I make the cake, I am the equivalent of of an artist. I design these cakes just like a T-shirt company designs T-shirts. This is this is the way I express myself. And I should have a First Amendment right Number one, to free expression, to decide what I'm going to do and what I'm not going to do. In addition, I have a deeply held, sincere religious belief. And in my case, my religious belief indicating, this is the guy making the argument, my religious belief 
is that this is this is wrong. This is against biblical training. This is against biblical rules, and I shouldn't have. I shouldn't be forced to to do this. And by the way, they can go anywhere else they want, and it's not like they're not going to be able to get a wedding cake. They're just not going to be able to get a wedding cake for me. And also, by the way, I'm not refusing to serve them. I'm just refusing to do the wedding cake. So anyhow, this has now gone through the court system. The Supreme Court yesterday said, we're going to take the case, and they will decide, I think, pretty much once and for all, whether or not, you know, conduct. And let's be honest here. This, what the baker did, clearly... I think violates the Colorado administrative code or the rules or the laws against, you know, discriminating against people based on sexual orientation. He said, I'm not going to provide this particular service to you because of my religious beliefs. But he says, my religious beliefs, the government shouldn't force me to do something against my religious beliefs. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We're now going to get a resolution of this once and for all. Who's right? The baker or, in this case, the gay couple who said, hey, we're being discriminated against because even though we could go somewhere else and get this, this particular man said he refused to do this. He should have had to give us the cake regardless of what his own religious beliefs are. Who's right? I'll tell you where I come down on this uh, in just a couple minutes, but I want to know how you react. We're going to get a resolution to this once and for all. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Who do you side with? Who should the Supreme Court side with, the baker or the gay couple? We discuss next. It's 915. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 918, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. If you're just tuning in, the, the phrase Masterpiece Cake Shop is going to be around a lot for the next year. It's the small bakery in Colorado that refused, the, the owner, small bakery, the owner who has legitimately deeply held religious beliefs, he believes same-sex marriage is, is wrong. You, you can agree with him, you can disagree with him, but that's what he believes. That's what his religion teaches. So you have this gay couple that comes in and they say, we, we want a cake for our, our wedding reception. He says, I'm, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll make anything you want, but I just believe this is wrong. I'm not going to make this. By the way, I, there's other types of cakes I don't make either. I consider myself to be an artist when I do these designs and things like that, and I just, I, I don't. I, I'm sorry. They file a complaint. The cake shop loses. The Supreme Court is now going to hear the case. And so the question becomes, do the rights of the, the gay couple to have the, the cake made does that trump the right of the business owner to essentially say this is contrary to my religious beliefs and I should be able to refuse this? Let's start with Lori in Milwaukee. Lori, you're on 620 WTMJ. Oh, good morning, Jeff. Hi, um, I, I, I make cake for people sometimes, and, you know, there's times I've had to refuse orders, you know, just for time purposes. Right. You know, he could have given any kind of reason, and it wouldn't be an issue. I yeah, but I mean, but things. but he was honest with him. I mean, well, I know, yeah, yeah he was honest. <laughs> but and then my other point is, why would you want to force someone to be a part of your wedding? I mean, that cake's going to have no love behind it. <laughs> well, I mean, well, and it's also, I mean, it's not like there weren't other bakers that would provide the cake. So it's not like well, they, yeah. they couldn't get a cake. As a matter of fact, they Didn't ended up getting one, they got one for free one for from free, from right? baker down the street. Yeah. Right. I'm sure there's people falling all over themselves that even specialize in same-sex weddings. But is this, okay, is this, did the baker, un, 
unlawfully discriminate against the couple? Should should he have? I don't should think he have? So. Okay, you think he should have the right to say, "I'm sorry, I just this is against my religion to make this particular cake, and I'm going to refuse." Yeah, okay. absolutely. Okay, I thanks think, for calling. Yeah. Now, I, well, this is what the Supreme Court's going to wrestle with. Again, I'll tell you where I come down on this in just a second. Um, there, now, the, the analogy is: what if this were a, a what if this say were an interracial couple, and, and they walked in and, and they wanted the same thing? Let's take out the, the 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 gay element. An interracial couple, and the guy said, "Well, I don't think white people should marry black people, or whatever, and I'm not going to make the cake." Would he be justified in refusing that? And, you know, to me, to me, the the answer to that is clearly no. Um, You know, if there is a the way the law works is you can refuse business for any reason or no reason, but you can't do it for an illegal reason. Um, a, a protected class. You can't refuse to serve somebody because of their race. Oh, there's a black guy at the lunch counter. I'm not going to serve him. Or I'm not going to serve somebody who's a Muslim at the lunch counter. You, you can't, you, you cannot do that. But the, what makes this different, or arguably makes it different, is clearly the man is going to be able to show that, you know, his religious beliefs teach him that marriage is between a man and a woman. So, by forcing him to make the cake, he is violating his personal religious beliefs. That's different than, I don't know that there's a religion out there that says, I don't think there's any religion out there that says, you know, you, you can't have interracial marriage or, or something like that. Or you can discriminate against somebody because they're of a different faith. But in this case, there, there's no, I mean, it is a... You can agree with it. You can disagree with it. But a lot of people, the religious training and the religious teaching is, you know, marriage is between a man and a woman. Brian in Milwaukee. Brian, you're in 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Brian. Okay, lost Brian. Brian was going to say that the uh, baker has the right to do it. 414-799-1620-800-877-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage um, Talk and Text Line. On our uh, text line, let's see. If somebody wanted a pedophile cake, would that be okay if he refused to make it? Or would be the baker be forced to make the cake for a child pedophile? Well, no, the answer to that is no, because pedophiles aren't a protected class. Um, but in Colorado... Um, sexual orientation is protected, and that's that's what the difference is. But what this case highlights is what happens when you have a law that creates a protected class, and that protected class, as applied, um, you know, runs counter to somebody's legitimate religious beliefs. If this guy were maintaining the position, hey, I just don't serve gay people because I, I think that that's wrong, I think that there's no question that this wouldn't be upheld. But what makes this tricky is he's not saying, I'm not going to serve gay people. It's just, I believe that I am an artist. Um, and when I make my cakes, that is my way of artistic expression, just the way there's a T-shirt uh, maker who you know makes expresses that. This is a First Amendment right of mine, and you know, you're telling me that I have to give up my First Amendment right, that my First Amendment right is trumped by the right of the gay couple. I don't know how the Supreme Court is going to handle this. And I, I think, I mean, obviously, I think the conventional wisdom is they're going to come out and they're going to say this is discrimination and you simply can't discriminate. But, but 
there needs to be at least some sort of balance to this. And I mean, I would also look at candidly and look, I, I don't have an issue. If I was a baker, I would have made the darn cake. I would have taken their money. I would have made the darn cake. That's what I would have done. But, of course, this guy feels much differently, and his religious training is much different than apparently mine is. And the couple could get a cake pretty much anywhere else. The fact that they went to him makes me wonder whether or not they were trying to push this issue. Let's talk to, um, let's see, Eddie in Franklin. Eddie, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning, Jeff. Uh, Franklin, uh, listener, love your show. Thank you, sir. Um, I'm just wondering if this is more politically charged, because if, if I went to, say, a Muslim restaurant and I wanted them to cater my, my wedding and I said, hey, I want pork and I want bacon, I wonder if the Supreme Court would back up uh, my my claim if, if I said that I was uh, unjustly turned away because they, it was a violation of their religion, because... Yeah. You know, Muslims don't eat pork. Right, yeah. Well, my answer to your question, thanks for calling it, would would be probably not is if the, I mean, okay, that's like, that's like, because, I mean, I'm assuming for the sake of your question that the Muslim restaurant doesn't serve bacon or pork, you know, so, I mean, it's not like you, I mean, you don't have a right to go to an an Italian restaurant and say, hey, I I want, I'm going to hire you to cater my my wedding or cater my event, but I, I want ribs or, you know, I want, you know, whatever, pork chops or whatever. And they say, well, okay, we, we do pasta. We, we don't do those type of things. No, I mean, you, you can't force them to do that. In this case, the guy does make wedding cakes. I mean, he does make wedding cakes. He just says, um, I, I just, I believe that I have a right to not only not only a business choice, but also my cakes are a First Amendment expression, that I am an artist, and you can't, you can't force me, or the government shouldn't be able to force me to use my art to design a wedding cake. Um, and that's why I started this whole conversation by you know, talking about the birthday cake I got that had the design on this. 414-799-1620 is the number. Joan in Menominee Falls. Joan, good morning. Good morning, Jeff. What do you think? Thank you for taking my car. Sure. Well, I um, am in a gay marriage. Um, I got married legally in this state of Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Um, we had to go through the process of setting up all of that stuff. Right. I think the baker is in the wrong. Um, I certainly think that when people are celebrating anything, if you're a baker, you kind of put yourself out there as a business person to do that. However, I think that the couple is also in the wrong by um, bringing this up and making such a big deal, taking a political stance on it, and you know, putting this through our legal system time-wise. If you don't support somebody in what they do, then you tell your family and your friends and they tell their family and their friends, and that's how you get the right. awareness out. And I think that would be a better. Right. Um, so, so if this, if so, it. for example, Joan, if this happened, if, if this happened to you, your mm-hmm. reaction would have been, "Hey, I'm going down the street. I, I'm, I'm going to get my cake made by somebody else, and I'm going to tell everybody I know about how I was discriminated by, by you know, this baker who's, you know, got these particular views. That's how you would have dealt with it, as opposed to saying, "Hey, I'm going to file a civil rights complaint." Yeah. Um, thanks. For, well, again, that's that. I, I I do think you you can't. I don't know if this couple, the 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 same sex couple, was trying to, you know, pick a fight here. I mean, that's what I mean by by knowing that this was going to be the reaction. Because my guess is there's this whole universe of cake stores that are out there that you could go and have this done. This is to me, it's a close call. I don't know how the Supreme Court is going to come down on this. My guess is, if I had to guess. 
I think they, my guess is they might find that the rights of the gay couple, the sex, to not be discriminated against, um, trump the rights of, of the gay, of the, of the guy who's got the religious beliefs against him. But this is going to be a, a close call. And it's, it really does show the balancing that's out there about, you know, the, these corresponding sets of rights. To me, again, one of the factors would be, could they get a cake anyways? And if they could get a cake anyways, and this was sort of, this guy's position was kind of the outlier, which I believe it is, um, you wonder why you filed the complaint in the first place. But we're going to resolve this matter one way or the other. Do the rights, in this case of the gay couple, to not be discriminated against based on their sexual orientation? And that's what happened. Do they trump the legitimately held religious beliefs of the man who's providing the service? It's 928. This is Jeff Wagner. Big thing number three is coming up. That's a good one, too. Stick around. It's 937, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. The state legislature is unlikely to have a budget by July 1st. What's holding it up? John McCure finds out when joined by Speaker Robin Voss at 320 today during the Wisconsin Afternoon News. Give you a hint. Robin Voss is what's holding it up. (laughs) But so McCure's talking to the guy. Um, All right. This is big story number three. Let me, um, there was a, I was reading a really interesting article in, uh, it was actually in the, Talkers Magazine, which is one of the, it's a trade publication for for my industry. And the the guy who's the publisher had a really interesting article about what the term mainstream media means nowadays. I mean, there's no question, when I started doing this job more than 20 years ago, um, what there there was, the, the mainstream media was understood. It was, people got their news and their information from, like, the three major networks, ABC, NBC, CBS. You know, maybe some people got it from PBS. You got it from, you know, the, the newspapers that got delivered. And, you know, maybe, you know, maybe a little bit on cable news. That has dramatically changed over the last 20 years. Um, ratings for the main newscasts dramatically lower than they were, Years ago, you you do have you have the rise of the cable networks. Uh, newspapers pretty much diminished in impact, at least certainly in the traditional way. But you know you've got the different websites that they have. There, there's more information and more information sources out there now than ever. So when you use the phrase mainstream media, it it's sort of it's tough to define exactly what that is because we've got more and more into niches, and I, I think that that's accurate. Still, when, when I use the term mainstream media, I do think that there is, as a general rule, this kind of group think that you get from the networks, both the over-the-air networks and the cable networks, um, and, and, you know, there is there is this sort of collective Groupthink. Fox, I mean, is kind of the outlier on that. They've clearly positioned themselves as, I think, the alternative to the sort of conventional wisdom that you get from the mainstream media. But I also understand that there's a lot of other media outlets as well. Okay, Donald Trump has made, well, really kind of a political career over the last couple years about running against the mainstream media, however you want to define it. And, you know, his, his big thing is to talk about fake news. Um, you know, news that gets ended up reported in breathless fashions, but, you know, turns out to be either non-stories or not true. And and Trump, I will concede this, 
I mean, he uses the term fake news to try to minimize the the impact that news stories and these news outlets have. And then, of course, you get the news outlets that are incapable of, of any sort of introspection at all. And rather than saying, hey, maybe there's a point to some of this stuff, and maybe our coverage really has been biased, or maybe you know we've gone over the top with the eight or nine columns we run every day talking about how you pull out of the Paris Accords and the, the, the climate, you know, the world's going to be over in 10 years. And instead of any introspection, the mainstream media, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the ABC, the NBC, the CBS News of the world, just get their, the CNNs of the world, just get their backs up and say, how dare anybody accuse us of being biased? And then they end up doubling down. Well, okay, CNN had a very interesting experience um, over the last couple days. On Thursday, they published a breathless story. They they have a new, quote-unquote, investigative news division. And on Thursday, they have this investigative reporter, who I believe came over from the New York Times, published a story reporting breathlessly that there was an active investigation into a Russian investment fund with possible tries or ties to several Trump associates. So, okay, this is like, this is the smoking gun. You know, the Senate is investigating this. It's got ties to Trump associates. Hold the presses. All right, the story was based on a single unnamed source. Um, and based on a single unnamed source, CNN reported that Congress is investigating a Russian investment fund with ties to Trump officials. Well, it, it turns out that uh, the story was either bogus or, at best, it's either bogus at worst or, at best, it's, they, they don't have the goods to report it. it it's improperly sourced. Um, what ends up happening is the uh, CNN article says that one of these Trump advisors and a tr- Trump transition team member who has been nominated to an ambassadorial level post based in Paris, um, it said that this guy back in January held a secret meeting with an official from the Russian fund, and they discussed the possibility of lifting U.S. sanctions at that meeting, which would be, of course, a, a big deal. Turns out that that's completely and totally untrue. Um, the, the guy um, comes out and says, uh, no, this isn't what happened. There was no secret meeting. Um, the guy who's like named in this report said he had given a speech on Trump's behalf at an event, and um, one of these Russian officials approached him at a restaurant to say hello. Um, there were no discussion of sanctions. There was no nothing. So this is just bogus. Meanwhile, um, sources and the the, uh, the Senate Intelligence Committee comes out and they also say there, there's no Senate investigation into this. This story is just wrong, and you know you guys ran with it. So what CNN does is CNN immediately pulls it from you know their website. They deactivate any sort of links, although it's still out there. Um, they say the story did not meet our editorial standards, and what they apparently do is they then. I don't know if they requested or this was just offered, but the reporter who wrote the story has now resigned. The person who was supposed to edit the story has resigned, and the person who was supposed to review the story above the editor has all re- resigned over this fake news story or incorrect news story. You know, when CNN is saying, hey, this just didn't meet our editorial standards, and, you know, 
We, we made a mistake. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Uh, there is also a report out today, this Project Veritas, and uh, I I take this I take it sort of with for gra- for with a grain of salt because um, Project Veritas is this group that goes around and they make the hidden recordings of, of people, and it's always interesting. Um, sometimes, though, the reports and the videos are kind of out of context. But I mean, there's a new thing out there now. They, they have another undercover video where they're talking with a CNN producer. And the guy is, you know, quoted, supposedly quoted as saying this, the Russian narrative is mostly BS right now. Ratings are incredible. Trump is good for business. You know, all these type of things, again, suggesting that it's not so much news uh, that, that's driving this or newsworthiness. Rather, it's, hey, it's ratings. And if we go after Trump, you know, we, we can get good ratings. Part of the problem that the mainstream media, however you want to define it, has when Trump accuses them of providing fake news is situations exactly like this, where in their hurry to get a story out or their blind hatred of Donald Trump or whatever, they don't follow generally accepted reporting standards. Hey, we've got one unnamed source who says these explosive things, we are going to run with the story. And they run with the story, and they trumpet the story, and then the story turns out to be bogus. Do you trust the mainstream media? 414-799-1620. That is the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If you turn on CNN, you turn on MSNBC, you pick up one of the major newspapers, you turn on the major evening newscasts, do you believe that you are getting accurate news or do you think that Trump has a point that some of the stuff out there is, in fact, fake news um, being presented in an effort either to drive ratings or or to advance an agenda, in this case, an anti-Trump agenda? Do you trust the news media to report things accurately? 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. In the case of the CNN story, they sure got it wrong. Right? Is this just a momentary blip, a mistake, Or is it evidence of the bigger problem that the president talks about with the media? I'll tell you where I come down on this, and we will discuss next. But I'm really curious as to how you feel. 414-799-1620 is the number. It's 946. This is Jeff Wagner. Nine forty nine, Jeff Wagner, six twenty, WTMJ. Sarah in Milwaukee. Sarah, good morning. Morning. Thanks for taking my call. No, I I don't trust any of that kind of news like that. I think I don't believe that there's even true reporters out there that much anymore. Or journalists. I think a lot of them are just talking heads. I think some of the stories they put are to just per- serve the purpose that they feel like serving. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorites was when Good Morning America and some other stations reported that there were packs of chihuahuas in some town in Arizona attacking school bus kids (laughs) because all these people were, you know, getting chihuahuas and then they were no longer the in thing because Paris Hilton didn't have hers. And an actual reporter went out there and the whole thing was false. There were no herds of chihuahuas attacking little kids waiting for the bus or anything. There was no thing (laughs) running rampant. But they reported it like, oh, my gosh, you know, this is this. you got to be fearful for your lives, people out there. 
Well, why um, do you why do you think they, they do it? I mean, what? Okay, let, let let's take the example I was giving because CNN not just had to walk back, but had to fully retract. They they put up this you know like breathtaking report. Trump advisor secretly negotiating with the Russians under Senate investigation. It's just based on some unnamed source. It's not true. There was never a meeting like they described. The Senate says we're not investigating this. Why? Why do they run with a story like this? What is? Why would somebody who is apparently experienced, respected reporters, these aren't interns, why do you think they do it? I think some of them are looking for their golden ticket where they've, oh my gosh, I found the story yeah. that's going to turn everything on its head. And, and society is different now. Everything's instant gratification. Right. So they're not going to dig deep like, say, the Watergate type you know, stories. Right. They want to be the first one out of date with the story, and look what I did. Um, and I, th- I, I agree there. with I agree with everything you just said, Sarah. And I also think I, I do think there is a political motivation. If if this let's switch it around, if this had been Barack Obama, I have no doubt that the story. They wouldn't have just stuck it up on the website with one unnamed source. It would have been vetted. It would have been investigated. But this was okay. It's Donald Trump. We want to believe this. You know, so badly, this is going to be the smoking gun that leads to impeachment. So you run with that as well. So I do think there is some ideology going on as well. Oh, most, most definitely. If you, if you even, and I don't watch the morning news on uh, any of the big channels anymore because it, I just listen to the radio. But if you even turn it on, every last one leads with a Trump story, right. no matter what it is. He can't sneeze without them leading, whereas... Barack Obama could have done a whole lot of things, and they wouldn't right. even, you know, he'd be in the second or third hour. They, it's like they're on a witch hunt looking for something right. um, on that. Right. No, I, I, I do. I mean, I do think that that's, that's an element, and this is, and, and look, I, I think, do I think President Trump goes over the top in trying to dismiss legitimate stories, news stories, as being fake, quote-unquote, fake news? Yes, I do. But at the same time, as I always say, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean that people aren't out to get you. And in my opinion, there's no question that you've got what I'm still calling the mainstream media, that, that, that it's a general, we don't like Trump, we think he is destroying this country, and we're going to do everything we can to bring him down, including all right, we're going to rush these stories out there. We want to believe this is true. Now, there's part of it is competitive pressure. You know, we want to be the first one. We want to be the first one that has this story that leads to the impeachment of Donald Trump. So you run stories like this that, again, play into this narrative of everybody who's complaining about fake news. Well, right, if CNN wonders why they, they get that rap, it's because they run stories like they ran on Thursday. John in Milwaukee. John, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hi, Jeff. I, I, I don't believe that half the stuff that actually comes out of the media. You, you see it, and then you almost have to filter it through and see right. it what and believe what you want out of it. You know, if you take uh, any instance like the one from the lakefront where they were talking about that guy with the shooting, he had a 9mm in the car, but nobody knows where the 9mm was. It wasn't like it was in his hand playing it around. Right. They don't even talk about it. They won't even bring that up. Right, or, or you get the Journal Sentinel. Right, or the Journal Sentinel runs this breathtaking story, this breathless story written by an intern, puts it on the front page about how you know police are trained not to shoot at fleeing vehicles. Well, right, police are trained not to shoot at fleeing vehicles. You look at the video. This wasn't a fleeing vehicle. This was a vehicle that no. was trying to run down a police yeah. officer. You know, yeah, it came right at that officer. Right. and there was more people. I mean, we can get into that whole right. story, but right. I mean, but, no, but it's the same other ones too. Right. 
Right. No, it, it, it doesn't the fit time. the narrative. Right. No, thank. And it does. And I think people are genuinely skeptical about this. And one of the things that is fueling this is that there are more there are more outlets for news nowadays. So, like, you have okay, maybe twenty years ago, there's this common narrative. Everybody puts this out there, and you say, okay, well, this is the way it has to be. Well, nowadays, there's more alternatives. There's more ways that people can have to get, you know, the real story, or at least get legitimately the other side of the story. And the truth is, sometimes there aren't two sides to a story. Okay, I'll be the first to acknowledge this. I mean, facts are facts, and sometimes the facts are what the facts are. But a lot of times what happens is there is nuance, but you have whether it's competitive pressures or agendas or whatever, you don't get that that nuance that's there. Scott in Whitewater. Scott, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Um, good morning, Jeff. My, my take on this topic is that is that as a consumer of news, I do have to shop around and listen around because I don't believe three-quarters, because when you listen to the alt-right sites oh, yeah. or, the hard, or the hard left sites oh, or yeah. the mainstream media, I don't believe three quarters will come out of any of them. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Yeah. I mean, there's craziness all around. There, there's, right there, and you know, I mean, the, the classic example of that. And every time I say this, I get some hostile emails. But okay, it was it was the obsession that the alt right, for example, had with Barack Obama's birth certificate. I mean, give you know, give me a break. That's that's the same sort of thing. Um, but I do think, Scott, one of the things you're seeing is that more and more of this kind of fake news concept is starting to play out also in what we would typically call the mainstream media, not just the fringe alt-right or the, the crazy left things. So thanks to call. I mean, I guess, I right, you, you have to be skeptical. Let's look at our text line. In an attempt to hurt Trump, the media hurts our country. They have created divisiveness and anger. Well, I mean, they're certainly capitalizing on it. Andrew writes, these accusations, true or not, will leave an impression on many Americans. Even though they retracted the story, the damage has been done, and millions of ignorant Americans will continue to believe the narrative. Well, that that is that is the problem you have when journalists decide that um, they're just going to be sloppy or they're going to be biased or whatever. This is not a good day for for CNN, and it raises some of these larger issues about, uh, again, the, the quest, the thirst for ratings and the desire to try to bring down a president. And every time a story like this comes out, you know, you know, when people say, oh, we, you know, Donald Trump talks about fake news. Well, OK, this is the type of stuff that's legitimately it is fake news. It's wrong news. And CNN should have known better. And now it's cost three people their jobs. It's 957. When we come back, remember John McEnroe? Well, if you don't, I'll tell you who John McEnroe is and I'll tell you why he is in trouble. And we will discuss whether he deserves to be getting all the heat he's getting. Stick around. It's 957. It's 1009, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So, Janie, this is my favorite story of the day in the category of how do you react? Um, woman in St. Louis, her and her husband just moved to Michigan. So they've sold their house. Okay. And um, they're, they're, so it's supposed to close like this week. And she gets a call on her cell phone from one of her neighbors in St. Louis. And the neighbor says, um, just so you know, the tarp your roofers put on yesterday is starting to blow up and, and back and the shingles all over. Okay, so he gets his call. Yeah. And she says, well, well, thanks for calling, but what do you mean the tarp my roofers put on? I, I'm not, I don't have any roofers. <laughs> 
So it's, it's not my house. Well, it is her house. What happened is she runs. She so she goes back to St. Louis, you know, because they're getting ready to close the house. Yeah, and it's true. Half her roof is gone. Well, she finds a whole bunch of her shingles mixed in with like beer bottles and stuff. Half the roof is off her house, and it's covered with a tarp, um, because apparently these this like roofing company had the wrong house. <laughs> so these, so she's she's like, oh, my house, the oh, roof is gone. No, <laughs> the, the the roof is gone. So she starts asking around, you know what what. What happened? You know, I mean, I can just imagine, like, standing on. Can you imagine you're standing on the street, like, looking at your house, going, uh, uh, uh. And then you want to double look, and then maybe right, it's not my right. house. It, it, but no, know? no, it, it's her house. Half the roof is gone, and so she starts asking questions about, you know, what did you see? And all everybody says is, um, well, there, there was this like three guys in a blue van, and they pulled up, and they were taking your roof off, and then they just kind of all of a sudden put a couple tarps up and and had apparently a couple beers and and drove off. Um, so, you know, she now starts, okay, what, did the van say anything? No, nothing. So she finds actually the, the, the postal carrier, which if you want to know what's going on in a neighborhood, you ask the postal carriers. You're absolutely right. And the postal carrier apparently says, yeah, I saw these guys. They were taken <laughs> off and, and they're two blocks over now. Oh, perfect. <laughs> so she goes over and. You have like Mo Shemp and Larry, you know, who are they got the wrong house, and so they took this all off, and then they just drove away, <laughs> like, like like you don't think they're going to notice, well, you know? You're hoping you know. <laughs> they, they just they just drove away and didn't it'll tell be, anybody. It'll be fine. Yeah, it's, nobody's going to know. They drove away, and actually, this woman is much more understanding than I am because now, once she finds this out, she calls up about she calls the roofing company up, and they say. Oh yeah, we're really sorry. We apologize. Don't worry, we'll we'll fix it at no charge. I'm like, yeah, of course you're gonna fix it at no charge. And but she's actually said, well, I'm not gonna name the roofing company because they're they're gonna they're gonna make it right. But it's like okay, <laughs> you know, she's a very nice person. I would not be that nice. But I can can you just? I mean, I'm just trying to picture you come home. You know, after a hard day's work, in this case, you know, she sold. She thinks she sold the house. Oh, the roofing tiles are blowing all over the neighborhood. Oh. It's not secured right. Roofing tiles, roofer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just, I'm trying to picture just standing on the street corner, going roof, roof. Um, what can you say? <clears throat> My favorite story of the day. The, 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 the way this is reported: runaway roofers who remove the wrong roof, tracked down by St. Louis neighbors. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a phrase you never want to hear involving your home. Runaway roofers who remove the wrong roof. Kind of like the the doctors that. Gee, I was supposed to take out the left kidney, and I got the right one, or something like that. Put an X on that. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah um, yes, right. Uh, this, I'm here for a vasectomy, <laughs> not not something else, there, Doc. You know, <laughs> just 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 be careful. Okay, let let us let us completely and totally switch gears. John McEnroe. Um, many of you, if you follow sports, you know John McEnroe. John McEnroe. Um, at in in the day was one of the best tennis players in the world. He was also extremely volatile. He, along with Jimmy Connors and a couple others, were sort of known as the bad boys of tennis. Here's, um, here is a representative sample of, of John McEnroe in his playing days. You can't be serious, man. You cannot be serious! That ball was on the line. Shaw flew up. It was clearly it. How can you possibly call that out? 
Um, and that's a minor thing. I mean, John McEnroe, known for throwing rackets and temper tantrums and all those type of things. Um, and just, again, one of the bad boys of tennis. Now he's a commentator. He does commentary for, I believe, NBC. And, of course, you've got Wimbledon that's coming up. And Wimbledon is arguably the, the most significant you know, tennis tournament, uh, perhaps with the U.S. Open. But I think people might even think Wimbledon's even bigger. But so... Um, John McEnroe, he's going to be doing commentary for that. John McEnroe is also out. He's selling a book. So he's on a book tour, and he's doing you know, various interviews. So he sits down um, as part of this book tour, and he does an interview with um, NPR. And he does an interview. It's a woman, Lulu something or other, with, with NPR. And they're talking about the, the book. And all the different things, and it's, it's kind of a tell. I, my guess is it's kind of a tell-all thing, and something like that. So th- this is a portion of the interview that gets a lot of attention, and it kind of gets, I, I think, sandbagged in a way by this NBR, NPR reporter. Um, and the NPR reporter says to him, "In your book, you say that Serena Williams, the, the current women's tennis player, you say that Serena Williams is the best." female player in the world and he says yeah he says actually i think she's the best female player ever no question so the npr reporter then says some wouldn't qualify it some would say she's the best player in the world why qualify it to which he says um oh uh well, well she's not you mean the best player in the world period the npr reporter says yeah the best tennis player in the world you know why say female player and he says, well, because if she was in, if she played the men's circuit, she'd be like 700 in the world. And the female reporter then says, ah, gotcha. I, she says, you think so? And he says, yeah. That doesn't mean I don't think Serena is an incredible player. I do. But the reality of what would happen would be, I think, something that perhaps would be a little higher. Maybe it would be a little lower. On any given day, Serena could beat some players. I believe because she's so incredibly strong mentally that she could overcome some situations where players would choke because she's been in it so many times, so many situations at Wimbledon, the U.S. Open, etc. But if she just had to play the circuit, the men's circuit, that would be an entirely different story. So he says, I think Serena Williams, greatest female tennis player in the world, the greatest female tennis player ever. The reporter says, well, well, why qualify it? I mean, why, why say female? Isn't, don't you think she's the, the best tennis player ever? And he says, no. He, he says, doesn't. I, if, she was, if she was playing men, I think that there's, he says, 700. You know, she, she'd have trouble beating the 700 player. Maybe it's a little high. Maybe it's a low. But all right. So that, that's what he says. There is an absolute firestorm. I'm looking at its headlines in, you know, one of the papers. Um, my, my gosh, he, he's sexist. He's misogynistic. Um, you know, he's mocking her. She's, she's you know, taking time off uh, because she's going to have a baby. And, and this is just outrageous. How dare you insult her, you know, in this particular fashion? Okay, 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Feel free to disagree with me on this, but at heart, I don't think John McEnroe is deserving the criticism that that he is getting here. I mean, here's here's just the reality. All right, boys are different than girls. Men are built differently than women. 
if you look at, let's say, track athletes, the fastest men in the world are going to be faster than the fastest women in the world. If you look at competitive swimmers, the fastest men in the world are going to be faster than the fastest women. Now, that's not saying that, you know, if I tried to play tennis with Serena Williams, she'd kick my butt. I I understand all that. But McEnroe... McEnroe is simply saying, hey, I, I give her all the props in the world. She's the greatest female tennis player ever, but I don't think the greatest female tennis player ever would be able to beat the vast majority of the top-ranked men. Is this sexist? Is this hateful? Or is this just the reality? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And I do think, in McEnroe's defense, I don't think he was trying to be controversial. I think he was baited into this by this NPR you know, interviewer who was clearly trying to create some controversy. But does McEnroe deserve to be criticized for saying, hey, I mean, she's a great female tennis player, but she's... Even the best female tennis player is not going to be as good as the top male. Now, maybe maybe it's not 700. Maybe, you know, it's 100 or 200 or whatever. But is there anything really fundamentally wrong in reality with what McEnroe said? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And from a female perspective, are you offended by this? Because I really, John McEnroe does a lot of stuff that I think he tries to offend people with. I don't get the sense that this was it. He was, he's answering a question. She says, hey, you know, why do you qualify best uh, female tennis player ever? And he's like, well, because I, I think the best male players are better than the best female players. Is that sexist? Is it misogynistic? Or is it just reality? Charlie in Milwaukee. Charlie, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Sure. I mean, with, t- with Title Nine, I mean, you see the growth of... Uh, female sports, and, uh, you know, some of them are phenomenal. Some of the sports are just phenomenal to watch, like um, the college uh, softball sure. and other things. But the other part about it is if we're not going to qualify it as male or female, just have one circuit and see who the best is. Get rid of the male and female designation and see who comes out at, on top. Well, right, and I, I guess I just think, Charlie, that would be silly because men and women are built differently there's different different physical attributes and i mean let's you take the top women's basketball players and you put them up against the very top men's basketball players and the men are going to be athletic superior athletically superior taking nothing away from how great the women are it's just the difference between boys and girls when it comes to physical body structure but that's why you qualify it if you don't want it to be qualified as best women player versus best player don't have two yeah. Well, right. No, I get it. Thanks. But I mean, I guess I just don't. The more fundamental point is I don't think what McEnroe said was that appalling. I mean, again, I'll go back to the example I was using with, with track athletes. You know, you can. All right. Let, let's take let's take sprinters. We'll, we'll take something that's just completely objective where you're not playing against each other. You're just running against times. The fastest men are faster than the fastest women. I mean, that's just it is the reality. It's just different body types. It's just the difference between boys and girls. And it's taking nothing away from how great female athletes are, but it's just a reflection of reality. 414-799-1620. I think McEnroe's getting a bad rap. And I'm, 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 I'm reading all these headlines, and it's, oh, terrible, he's sexist, he's awful, he's picking on Serena because she's off, you know, having a baby. Hey, he answered, I think he answered a question honestly. 
All right, we continue the conversation. If you're on the line, hold on. It's 1022. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 1024. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Kim writes, this outcry isn't coming from athletes. I promise you that. Athletes know I am so sick of canned outrage. Yeah, that is that is precisely, you know, what this is. Uh, another one of my texts, Johnny Mac is spot on, and she would kick my butt. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm not saying that women are, aren't great athletes, but you, you put the best male athletes in the same sport up against the best female athletes, and just because boys are built differently than girls, you're, you're going to have the, the, the male athlete, the body type, is going to be superior. I, I think, and that's not taking anything away from the female athlete. Is that really this controversial? 414-799-1620 is the number. Um, John in Waukesha. John, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hey, good morning, Jeff. Uh, this is a non-issue. Yesterday I was watching, pardon the interruption, and uh, they talked about this, and Serena Williams herself has admitted she would lose to the best player, male player, in straight sets in about 10 minutes. Right. Right. Yeah. I, and I guess now, if you want to criticize McEnroe, I, I don't know about. I, I guess I just don't know enough about how good how good is the top seven hundredth player. I mean, is is that kind of being insulting? I mean, again, I, I just don't know. But this I think idea it's McEnroe being McEnroe. Yeah. Well, right. Exactly. So so maybe it's one hundred or maybe it's two hundred. But I mean, it's not. I mean, if if the basic premise is could the best male be, beat the best female? Well, I I think. It, it, that shouldn't be even arguable, and that's not taking that's taking nothing away from the great female athletes who would certainly kick my butt. You know? Oh, I agree, and mine as well. Yeah, no, thank, I, that I mean, I guess that's it. Now, maybe if you want to, if, if you want to say where he was being offensive was that he he unreasonably demeaned her by by going all the way down to seven hundred. But see, I, I think that's I, I think this would have been a controversy. That's not. That's not what the NPR reporter was trying to get him into. I mean, he, he could have said, okay, you go to the, the 250th player, and the outrage would have still been, been the same. You know, he wanted her to say she's the best she's the best player in the world, period. And he was like, no, she's the best female player ever, but let, let's just, you know, let's recognize the difference between when it comes to athletics, let's reference, let's recognize the difference between top male athletes and top female athletes. Scott in Oak Creek. Scott, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning, Jeff. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Okay, now the, the moment I heard about this this controversy that John McEnroe said, and I don't know if you remember, but it just brought me back to Bobby Riggs <laughs> and Billie Jean <laughs> Yep. I think this is a build-up for a match. <laughs> yeah, for, for people who might, I, you know, it's, it's interesting. I was watching a show the other night that went back to, for people who might not remember, back in the 70s, like I want to say it's 73, but that's just off the top of my head, you had Billie Jean King, who was the dominant female tennis player, and you had Bobby Riggs, who was some retired tennis hustler who was in, like, I think his like, late 50s or 60s. He said he could beat you know, any woman in the world, and there was this huge hype. I think they played at the Astrodome, and Billie Jean King, you know, just whipped Bobby Riggs' butt. But it was this incredible money-making thing for everybody and a statement for feminism, I guess. Oh, it was huge. It was huge. So you think this is Serena's going to have her child come back, and then we're going to be looking at a McEnroe versus Serena match, huh? I I really believe that. (laughs) That's the first thing I thought of when I heard about this Bobby Riggs and Billie Jean King. Yeah, it's, it's, it's entirely, well, I, I guess, 
Maybe, maybe so. But see, I don't think McEnroe is that smart. I just think now maybe some promoter is going to come out and pitch that type of thing. But I, I don't. I don't. I really. It pains me to defend John McEnroe because I thought you know sometimes I think he was over the top. But I. I, I just. I think he got drawn into this particular thing. I just think that the in this case it's the NPR reporter that, that she took him down this road and she was trying to set him up and he, he said what he ended up saying. And again, maybe maybe when he went to seven hundred that was that was too big. But I mean the controversy was no, she's not the best tennis player ever. She's the best female tennis player ever. Okay, coming up in just a couple minutes for all the liberals out there be careful what you wish for. It might come true. Stick around. It's 1029. It's 1036. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. With the big gig beginning tomorrow, why not get ready by taking a stroll down memory lane from Bob Hope to Bruno Mars and from McCartney to Metallica? Summerfest has had more than its fair share of top flight talent. Check out our gallery of 50 headliners in 50 years. It's up now in the Summerfest section of WTMJ.com. You know, Colleen, during the news, had the story about, you know, Ron Johnson and there were reports of questions whether or not uh, the Senate health care bill was going to get to uh, a vote this week. Um, I think the answer right now is starting to look pretty clearly that answer to that is is no unlike paul ryan who did not advance the house health care bill until he knew he had enough votes to pass it um there's been speculation that mitch mcconnell would try to get this matter to a vote even if there aren't enough votes to pass it which to me procedurally and politically makes no sense at all but it doesn't appear that that's going to happen um journal sentinel is reporting that um there's at least four republicans who say they would oppose a motion to proceed. That is a procedural vote to begin floor debate on a piece of legislation. So you've got 52 Republicans, you've got 48 either Democrats or people that caucus, like Bernie Sanders, who, who caucuses with the Democrats. So assuming that no Democrats vote on the motion to, to vote in favor of the motion to proceed, um, you, you really you can only lose two Republican votes, as long as you have the vice president there who's Republican to cast a vote, already four have said that they are going to oppose a motion to proceed. And, and Ron Johnson telling Fox News and CNN that the same thing he told me when we had an interview last week, that, um, well, not specifically with regard to the motion to proceed, but you know he's been saying all along, it's just too fast. He's not necessarily saying he's against the bill. He just wants more time to review it to try to make it better and to process all the stuff that's going on so you can explain it, explain it to the constituents. So he said this morning, I'm going to oppose the motion to proceed because it's too early for a, a vote. Um, and he, he's saying, I don't consider myself to be a no on the bill itself. I'm just not a, a yes yet. And he says, look, he, he's not going to be an ideologue. He could support a bill that isn't perfect, but... Um, you know, he, he said, look, th- this bill doesn't go far enough. Now, the interesting thing that's going on in the Senate is you have a, a couple 
of the more moderate Republicans who aren't happy with the bill because they think it goes too far in rolling back coverage and cutting Medicaid. And then you have others, some of the more conservative senators like um, Senator Paul and, and Ron Johnson. And they're, I think, concerned that the bill doesn't go far enough in dismantling the mandates of, of Obamacare. So you've kind of got this split, but it's very, very clear that you got the 4th of July that is coming up. This is Tuesday. You've got a Senate recess. It seems to me very clear that no matter how much arm twisting you end up doing, the, the bill's not going to be ready for prime time and not going to be ready for a vote unless you can get at least a handful of, of these sort of, well, I'm going to use the phrase, dissident Republicans to d- decide to go along with it. I continue to believe that one of the, one of the, there's many flaws to Obamacare, and Obamacare is just a failure, and I understand people don't like to hear that, but that's just the truth of the matter. The, you know, One of the things that really had always haunted Obamacare is you know, Nancy Pelosi coming out and saying, you know, we need to pass the bill to find out what's in it, which might have been taken slightly out of context, but that's the way that whole bill got labeled. I think Republicans would be do well, do well not to make the same mistakes and figure out, all right, look, this is this is what it's going to do. We understand this. There's the new Congressional Budget Office scoring saying 22 million people would lose insurance. Well, I, that's because a lot of people would just decide that they, they don't want to have to have the mandatory insurance. But you need you need an opportunity to sell this to the American people. There's no need. You need to have something done. And that's what Johnson's saying. Johnson's saying that, hey, I, I'm not talking about months and months. I'm just talking about... Um, hey, you know, let's give us some time to digest this very complicated bill that was only uh, unveiled last week. He says, I'm not asking for months, but let's take a couple weeks. Give me a chance to make the case to try to improve it. And I guess I don't see anything wrong with that. All right. Liberal heads are exploding all over the country because the facts are running into and up against what has been the liberal mantra. We have talked on this program repeatedly about this movement to try to increase minimum wages. You know, the fight for 15, the idea that we're, we want to increase. If you work at a McDonald's, you, you should you should be making $15 an hour because less than $15 an hour isn't a family supporting wage. So we think the employer should be mandated to pay you $15 an hour. Look, I'm not against people making money. I, that, that's that's wonderful. But but there are there are values to what you do. And in in general, I think it's a free market type of thing. And I have argued all along that if you increase the minimum wage dramatically and make employers pay more than the jobs are worth, there is going to be a a fallout. And there's going to be um, some what we would call unintended uh, consequences. And that is precisely what is happening in Seattle. All right, Seattle, um, with lots and lots of fanfare, has begun increasing its minimum wage. And ultimately, they're supposed to get to $15 an hour in the next year or so. But right now, the minimum wage, $13 an hour. So the question becomes, all right, what what is happening in Seattle? Yes, people, if you're flipping burgers, you're getting $13 an hour. Isn't that great? Isn't that outstanding? Well, in two minutes, I'm going to tell you the other side of the story, and we're going to discuss. It's 1043. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 1046. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Okay, two years ago, 
little over two years ago, April of 2015, the minimum wage in Seattle went from $9.47 an hour to $11 an hour. Right Then in January of uh, 2016, so a year and a half ago, it went to $13 an hour, and it's ultimately supposed to hit you know, $15 an hour relatively soon. So, all right, you might think, oh, this is great. You know, We're now getting closer to providing a living wage for the minimum wage workers, the people at the fast food restaurants. Now they're making $13 an hour. Isn't that great? Well, okay, the University of Washington, they're economists were commissioned by the city to do a study saying, okay, what is the impact of these minimum wage laws? Well, the study came out yesterday, and here's what they find. They find that the costs to the employees of this minimum wage increase outweighs the benefits by a three-to-one ratio. Now, you might say, Jeff, that doesn't make any sense. These minimum wage people are getting more money. Why? How, how, can, how can they be losing out? Well, here's what happened. They said, yes, the working poor are making more per hour. But they are, on average, taking home less pay. The University of Washington says the new wages, again, on average, boosted worker pay by about 3%. But it also resulted in a 9% reduction in hours and, on average, a $125 cut in monthly paychecks. Why? Because the employers decided that, yeah, we got to pay more, but, you know, we, we, this money has to come from somewhere. And so what they're doing is they're cutting hours. So, yeah, you're, you're going to make $2 more an hour or $3 more an hour, but you're not going to get anywhere near as many hours. Get this. In addition to the increase in minimum wage actually reducing workers' take-home pay, they also found that the city, um, the law also cost the city 5,000 jobs. Again, these, these are the minimum wage jobs. The Seattle economy is apparently booming, and for the higher-pay jobs, you know, employment has actually increased. But the group that is being hurt are the group that is covered by these minimum wage increases. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, again, a lot of the proponents, their heads are exploding about this. This can't be. This can't be. Well, I think it was clearly bound to happen, and it typically has happened. There's some study that some economists did in 1994 that suggested, well, maybe it's not going to be the case. But here's a real-world thing. You've been doing this in Seattle for the last couple years. They're looking, and they're finding, yes, you're making more per hour, but surprise follows surprise. The employers are getting rid of jobs, and they're cutting hours. I think that would happen here as well. So. $15 an hour minimum wage, $13 an hour minimum wage for jobs that aren't worth that much money. Is this the way to go? Would the experience in Seattle be the same experience that we would have if we would do this, say, in Milwaukee? And I think the answer is not just yes, but hell yes. Let's start with David in Mequon. You're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Uh, Good morning, Jeff. Um, Excellent topic. I totally agree with you on this. Um, the, The thing that that's really disgusting, uh, which is kind of missed in the article, that is that the mayor of Seattle is touting the increase in wages. Yeah. But he totally ignores the fact that 
5,000 okay, fewer jobs. Increase, you're right. And essentially what we're doing, Jeff, is we're eliminating an entire rung, the lowest rung, out from you know people that wanted to start off to, to get a job. Right. And it becomes more competitive. The people that do have experience, yeah, they're going to get a little bit of an increase but at the cost of, you know, the person right. that doesn't have any experience. Right. And, and more and, automation will come along with it as well. Well, yeah. Along, I mean, with, along with increased prices, they'll be passed on to the consumers as well. Right. It, it's all happening, right? Th- thanks for calling. Dave, you know, the sure. problem, David, is, you know, you're going to have people that are going to be listening to you and I saying, oh, the, 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 these David and Jeff, they just don't care about, you know, the, these workers. And don't you understand that you can't, you can't make it on less than $15 an hour? Well, I also understand there's this thing called the free market. And, you know, th- this is the real-world effect of these government policies. It costs jobs, and it actually hurts the workers. Yes, I mean it's it's at the end of the day, and the fact that Milwaukee is considering the the same result will happen in Milwaukee as it would right. in Seattle too. Right? No, you're exactly right. Thanks to call four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That's the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, th- this is the empirical numbers. This is what they did in Chicago in, in Seattle. You took the minimum wage in t- uh, about a little over two years ago. You took it from nine seventy five to eleven. You've got it at thirteen. You're heading for fifteen. You're not even at fifteen now, and the effect is. 5,000 of these jobs have disappeared. These minimum wage jobs have disappeared. And the, av- and the average take-home pay of the minimum wage worker has decreased by over $100 because employers have responded by cutting the hours. Would Milwaukee's experience be different? I don't think so. 414-799-1620. Now, I understand this isn't what a lot of people want to hear, but this is what is happening in the real world, and this is why... I mean, anybody pushing for, again, government-regulated increases this much, $13 an hour, $15 an hour, it would be devastating on the people that you think you're trying to help. At least that's where I, where I think. We continue our discussion next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1053. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 1056, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. And, and this, like, trust me, heads are exploding all across the country because the religion has been, you know, we, we need to we need to increase the minimum wage. People need $15 an hour. People like me have been arguing for years that if you do that, um, what's going to happen is people are actually going to lose their jobs because that's the way employers aren't going to be able to afford to pay. And that is precisely what is happening in Seattle. They've been boosting the minimum wage from 9 to 13 bucks over the last two-plus years. And what they found is 5,000 minimum wage workers have lost their jobs. This is at a time where people who make more money, they're actually the economy is booming. So this is specifically for the minimum wage jobs. Over 5,000 people have lost their jobs. And even though people are making more per hour, they're getting less in take-home pay because their hours are being cut. And I, I just that's something that just candidly makes eminent sense to me. Here's the other thing. Um, Dan writes, highly predictable to anyone who took Economics 101, higher wages make automation more feasible. That's the other shoe that's going to drop. We talked about this a couple months ago, and I, I think it was Wednesday's. If it was one of the other burger doodles, I'll stand corrected. But more and more of these businesses are putting in, like, the self-serve, for example, the self-service kiosks. So you you own the burger doodle. um, You can either pay people to staff the counter, 
Um, and maybe, you know, at a busy time, you've got four or five people behind the counter. Or what you can do is for $12,000, you can put in a kiosk. And you're always going to need maybe one person behind the counter. But you've got, you know, this, these kiosks where people can go and they can just punch in their order. And then it's automatically processed. You don't need a body to take the order. And these kiosks for fast food stuff cost $12,000, and they let three people order at the same time. Well, all right, the payback period for especially like at 13 or $15 an hour, you can put these in, and you'll, you'll eat up. You'll, you'll have accumulated the savings in just you know less than a year or so. So more and more people are doing automation. So what does that mean? That means fewer jobs. That is the reality that's out there that is the reality that's out there with these different costs. And the example I always give, years ago, if you went to a racetrack, right, you would walk in and there would be all sorts of tellers, you know, sitting behind, you'd have oh, what they call them race riders. You know, you'd go up and you'd place your bet. I want to put $2 on, you know, number six in the third race. And they'd put it out there. You go to a track nowadays and it's almost all machines. Not exclusively, but it's almost all machines. I mean, you'll have a couple windows staffed with people, but everybody's using these automated betting machines. And, you know, that's that's the wave of the future, but that means that people have lost their jobs. Well, all right, you increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour. You want to see job loss. That's it, and that is precisely what is playing out in Seattle. So for everybody who thinks you're doing minimum wage workers a favor by boosting their minimum wage to 13 or $15 an hour for jobs that aren't ostensibly worth 15 or $13 an hour, what happens? Fewer hours and fewer jobs. What a surprise. It's 1109, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Glad to have you with us. All right. The GOP, the Republicans, as part of their health care reform bill, are trying what is called a lockout. Is this cruel? Is this unfair? Let me explain to you what a lockout is. Part of one of the major reasons why health care insurance and why the cost of Obamacare and things like that are, are going up so much is because of the mandate to cover pre-existing conditions. What, what, is, what is a pre-existing condition? Pre-existing condition is um, someone who doesn't have insurance but suddenly gets sick and decides that they then want to get insurance, and as a result, the costs just go through the roof. Um, the way insurance works, and I've, I've kind of explained this before, is that you have a pool of, of people, hopefully a large group of people, and you have a number of the people, and everybody's paying premiums, and the vast majority of people don't end up, end up paying more in premiums than they take out of the system. So there's money left over. There's extra money. And the insurance companies use that extra money, number one, to, to get a profit for themselves, and number two, to pay the claim. So let's say you have a situation where you have a 1,000 people, and 950 of those 1,000 people don't, don't ever exceed their deductible. You know, they're just they're, – they're healthy, but they're paying in to try to protect themselves in, in case they get some catastrophic illness. The other 50 – are people who are are sick and they're they're taking out they're getting more in payments than they they put in you've got the person that's got the cancer diagnosis or or whatever well the way the system for an insurance system to work you have to have enough healthy people that are paying premiums 
that don't draw from the insurance to cover the relative handful of people who are really, really sick. Well, the problem is when you have pre-existing ill, and of course, with pre-existing illnesses, that conditions, that's always been a concern. I mean, it's been like, okay, well, what happens if you've been insured your entire life? And all of a sudden, you've gotten your insurance through your employer, you lose your job, and then three months later, you, you find out that you've got some condition that makes you uninsurable. Or you lose your job while your spouse is getting treatment for this, and your insurance ends up getting canceled or whatever. What? How do you deal with it? What, what happens? So that, that's always an, ex, an issue with pre-existing condition coverage. But the reality is, you, you can't... If if people can simply say, I'm going to go without insurance, I'm not going to pay into premiums, except once I need the insurance, then I'm going to come in. Well, if if that happens, you pretty much guarantee that the insurance system is going to fail because then you're only going to have the sick people in the system. See, that's kind of how it works. So what the Republicans are trying to do is to figure out a way to encourage people to get insurance and participate in the insurance plans before they all get really, really sick. So what they've done is they've come out with this concept of called, it's called a lockout. And the way the lockout would work is it would say, all right, you have the choice as to whether or not you want to buy insurance. But we want to encourage you, we want to encourage you to buy insurance or to stay in the program because what will happen is if you go without insurance, if you make the decision you're not going to carry insurance, well, you're going to be locked out of getting coverage for at least six months after you sign up. So the idea being, okay, let's say January 1st of 2017, you decide that you, you don't you want to drop your insurance. Well, um, then you find out, hey, I, I'm sick. I'm going to need some form of coverage. Well, then you say, okay, I want to buy insurance. Well, okay, you're, you're locked out for six months. You've got to wait till you know, June of 2016 to get your insurance. That that's the way it would work. And the idea would be we're going to try to encourage people to do the responsible thing. Now, in some respects, this is kind of similar to what goes on with Obamacare now, because under o- Obamacare, if you let your insurance coverage lap, lapse, you have to wait until the next year before you can sign up. So the idea being you can't just wait till you get sick to sign up. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is it unfair to have this lockout provision that essentially says if you make the decision to go without insurance, well, then you're not going to be able to suddenly, once you get sick, immediately jump in? 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Um, you Feel free to disagree with me. And I understand that some people might argue you know, that that's cruel. You mean to tell me if somebody makes a decision to go without insurance and then they get sick, they get a diagnosis of cancer or something, you would actually make them wait, you know, six months in order to get coverage? And my answer would be, yeah, I, I would. And that's really not that different from the way the system works now. But you can't just let people 
make the decision to go without insurance and then automatically just step in the next day and get coverage. So, yeah, I don't have a problem with this lockout provision, just like I don't have a problem with the Affordable Care Act making people wait until the sign-up periods before they're eligible for it. Otherwise, you're never going to have an insurance system that's going to work. Now, maybe for some people, if that, you know, the idea is, well, you know, if we have national health care, it won't matter. Anybody can sign up any time. But I do think you have to have people, I do think you have to have people um, that have some motivation to get insurance. 414-799-1620 is the number we discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1116. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 1118, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Think about this with, like, automobile insurance. Wouldn't it be nice if you say, well, I don't I don't like paying those car insurance premiums. Um, I'm going to wait until I have a wreck, and then, then I'm going to sign up for the insurance, and I expect that I'm going to get my, my car replaced, and I'm going to expect that the insurance company is going to pay for, you know, the lawsuit for the damage I've caused. It, it just... It doesn't work that way. And in the healthcare situation and setting, you need to have some way of encouraging people to be responsible. And that would be, and to continue to be insured. Because there will be periods of time where if the system is ever going to work, you need people, you need healthy people paying the money in so that they're covering the people who are sick. And when they get sick, you know, then they can draw money out. Uh, David at Brookfield. David, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning, Jeff. Hi, David. I agree I agree with everything you've said, but I think the real situation here is with pre-existing conditions or someone who gets sick and doesn't have insurance, they're, they're going to go to the doctor. They're going to incur the medical expense. And if the reason for it, not having insurance, is uh, because they can't afford it, we're all going to pay for the cost of this anyway. What if they That's choose the not to afford it? I mean, because well, you've got you all know, sorts I, of Obamacare I, subsidies. What if somebody just makes the decision, you know, it's just I, I, I don't want to do this because I can afford it. But I, I'm I'm choosing not to because I'd rather have the there's going to be some money that's coming out of my pocket and I'd rather spend it on my cell phone than on insurance. And I agree that there will be a percentage of the people that do that. And but I still think that the primary cause of not having insurance is lack of funds and uh, lack of spendable income. And like I say, I think we, the public that have insurance, uh, the medical facilities are going to be writing off so much of this cost, uh, regardless of uh, having um, whether the guy can afford the insurance or not. And we, as the public, will all end up paying for it one way or another. And so this pre-existing condition situation, I think, first of all, I, I do think it's unfair. Um, you have you have spoken uh, numerous times that the some of the reasons for um, having precondition or pre-existing conditions is get sick without insurance. A lot of people have insurance and they get sick and then lose job or something mm-hmm. and then have difficulty getting it or will be without coverage for the three yep. waiting period when they get another job. And so all of this, uh, if you don't have a job and you don't have insurance, what happens to that bill? Yep, they'll send them to collections, 
and then they won't pay for the collection company, and eventually the medical facility will write off the, the debt. Well, but, but not always. I mean, for maybe for some of the most extensive emergency care, but let, let's say you need a hip replacement, for example, and you have no way of paying for that. I mean, I don't know that the hospital is automatically going to give you the, the hip replacement. Maybe they will, but I don't think so. I mean, I, I see what you're saying for some of, right, you come in, you come into the emergency room and you're presenting with a heart condition, a heart attack. Yeah, you're going to get treatment, yeah. but there's a lot of other covered situations that you're just going to have to wait if you don't have the money to pay for it. Well, and I understand, I understand that, but I think most of what we're talking about here is not hip replacement type surgery. I think it is more of the heart attack situation or mm-hmm. I sliced my arm off or, or those types of situations as opposed to a hip replacement, which more than likely you've lived with for a long period of time, and until you can afford to pay for it, you're not going to get it paid for. Right. But if they're... If okay, well, so what's your answer, Dave? I mean, I, I get what you what, what is your I, I, answer? I think, I think the pre-existing conditions should be included. I think um, part of the problem was the um, our insurance is relatively cheap, uh, relatively. Now, not what we were paying 30 years ago, obviously, but um, it's... So you don't think there should be a waiting period? So if if I make a decision that I'm going to go without insurance... Um, and then all of a sudden, I go to the doctor, and you, you get some sort of catastrophic diagnosis. You think I should be able to, to sign up tomorrow, and then have and, and have the insurance ca- cover the, the costs? In a perfect world, Jeff, no, you absolutely should not be able to do those things. But um, when we look at uh, how the um, medical profession works and uh, those types of things, I think we're just we're kidding ourselves that uh, a lockout period is going to be effective. Okay, well, thanks for calling. I mean, I appreciate the respect. I mean, here, let, me, let me just be honest here. Here, here is the alternative. Um, if you don't have some lockout or some limitations, th- then then you're talking about national health care. That, that, that's th- There's no way any system with insurance can work if you can wait until you get sick. And then this just jump in. I mean, it's because it, nothing will ever be sustainable. Now, do, do people really want national health care? I mean, as, as we've talked about before, I mean, the estimates are it's hundreds of trillions of dollars to to implement like even a single payer system um, across the board. I mean, do we do we really want that for people? Um, and I understand. Look, I understand. This sounds this sounds cruel. You mean to say that you would, you know, deny coverage for somebody? Well, if somebody makes the decision that they're going to go uninsured, and the truth of the matter is, with the subsidies that are out there, um, there there's really no reason for anybody to go uninsured, especially with, like, under the Obamacare subsidies. There's no reason for anybody to do that. People still end up, you know, making that decision. But there's no reason to do that. People do it because they'd rather spend the money on, on other things or take the chances. But at the same time, yeah, I, I think that there has to be some incentive that requires you to have insurance before you need the insurance. Uh, let's talk to Lon in Kenosha on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Well, thank you. What do you think? Well, I'm agreeing with what you have to say. The whole idea of insurance is a pool of dollars for which the unfortunate have to receive reimbursement when they have something happen. But it's not insurance when you can turn it on 
instantly. That's that's right. re- you know that's that, that, that's national health care. It, well, it's it's in yeah. the title. It's national health care. Might as well be. Might as well you know come to grips with that because there has to be right. People have to participate. You can't wait till you need something and then say, "Hey, give this to me," and I don't want to pay for. I don't want to pay to protect myself in advance. No system will work with that system. I agree. Uh, my wife and I are both sixty-four. Our prior caller said insurance is relatively cheap. She has a $3,500 deductible before anything is paid. I have a $6,500 deductible before anything is paid, and I'm not complaining about being successful, but it's not cheap. Between the two of us, we pay $23,500 a year for our health insurance. Right. It's not cheap, and and it's going to get worse if they allow these kind of things to happen. The people that are, are playing... by the rules, so to speak, of making sure that they're insured continuously, paying for it, their rates are going to keep going up, and it's not going to be affordable for anyone. No, you're you're exactly right. Now, I have have a text from Eileen, who who makes the point that I've been trying to make with regard to the legitimacy of this issue, Jeff, pre-existing conditions are also a function of people who have an insurance carrier now, have a medical issue, and then are faced in a situation where they have to apply for new insurance due to a life change, like a loss of change or job. We should not be excluded under these circumstances. See, I I get that. That's, that's what to me has always been the pre-existing condition conundrum. Try that, saying that three times fast. You know, the people who've, who've done the right thing, who've been insured all their life, and then, again, you've got diabetes or, or let's say you've, you've got diabetes, you lose your job, you try to get another policy, and because you've got diabetes, it's prohibitively expensive or you can't find um, you, you can't find a carrier that will cover that. I understand and I agree. If you've been doing it correctly your entire life, yes, you should be able to figure out a way to continue, to have continuous coverage. I get that. What I think you need to identify, though, is the people that are the jump on, the jump off. Hey, I, I'm sick here. Now I want the insurance uh, pay for this. Okay, now um, the, the condition is cleared up. Here, I'm going to drop the insurance, and I'm going to wait till I'm sick again. It's that jump on, jump off that drives the rates through the, the roof. So um, you got to deal with that, or else then you just have to say, okay, we're, we're going to give up on the entire private insurance market, and we're going to, let's go to national health care. Now, do you really want national health care? Um, I don't, but but maybe maybe that's the way that you think to go. It's 1128. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It is 1135, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. With the big gig beginning tomorrow, why not get ready by taking a stroll down memory lane? From Bob Hope to Bruno Mars, from McCartney to Metallica, Summerfest has had more than its fair share of top-flight talent. Check out our gallery of 50 headliners in 50 years. It's up now in the Summerfest section of WTMJ.com. And that brings me to what I want to talk about next. Uh, As I was saying earlier, I've... I mean, I, I, I was not at the, the first Summerfest was not on the Summerfest grounds, and I was not at that one. But as somebody who has lived in this area essentially pretty much continuously since I was uh, 10 years old, I have, I have been to more than my share of Summerfest. I mean, the first concerts I went to were at, at Summerfest. I, 
I remember I was at Summerfest the night George Carlin got arrested. As I always say, I, it's, it's kind of like people claiming to be at the Ice Bowl. I wasn't at the Ice Bowl. I was at the game at County Stadium before that. That was the first Packers game I ever went to when I was a kid. But, I mean, I, I was at Summerfest the night that George Carlin got arrested. I was at Summerfest the night of what they call the Humble Pie Riots. Um, lots of different shows at Summerfest over the years. And as I talk about whenever I get a chance to sit down with Don Smiley, it's been amazing to me how how like the grounds have changed. I mean, I, I can remember going to Summerfest when – the main stage was at the very north end of of the grounds, and where you had a bunch of you had a bunch of bleachers, and then you know you just you just had grass, and where I just there, there might have been times where they had you know a, a couple like built-in restrooms, but basically it was porta potties, and you'd have the beer tents, and it would rain and it would get muddy. I mean, I, I can remember all that, and it's been just amazing to me to see the way over 50 years, 50 years of Summerfest, the way the grounds have changed, the different modifications that they've made, all the different improvements they've made, and and really, I mean, every once in a while when I go down to Summerfest, I, I have to, I try to take just a step back and close my eyes and remember, you know, what what the place looked like. You know when they first started it in the early seventies to um, you know what it you know what it looks like now and it's just al- always been you know amazing to me how how these things have changed and how it's it's developed and how as an institution Summerfest has continued to grow to grow you know there have been countless music festivals that have come and gone over the course of the last fifty years Summerfest endures and I think Summerfest. Not, not only is it still there, but I think you can make a strong argument that, you know, with 800 bands, you know, crammed in over the, the run of the, the festival, um, with the improvements to the grounds, you can make an argument that it is perhaps better th- than ever. Now, the Summerfest experience is different than, say, the State Fair experience. I mean, I think people, uh, for me, I like Summerfest, I like State Fair, but they are they are different experiences. Um Summerfest is clearly a spot where there's, you know, lots of lots of memories to to be had. I was just telling a story. I was at dinner last night. I was just telling a story about. I remember the one year it used to be Summerfest always had twelve ounce of beers for 50, twelve ounce beers for fifty cents. That it's, it's an old story. Then one year they switched. You could still get the twelve ounce beers for fifty cents, but you could get a twenty four ounce beer for a dollar. This was one year. I learned the hard way that you cannot or should not drink as many 24-ounce beers for a dollar as the 12-ounce beers for 50 cents. I, I was punished. Believe me, I, I was punished for that. Thank goodness I was not driving that night. But what I thought we'd do is, in honor of the festival kicking off tomorrow, I'm not broadcasting there from there because it doesn't open till noon, so it doesn't make much sense to send me down to grounds before people are you know, getting there. But Scafidi and Bill Stad will be there. John McCure is going to be there. Wisconsin's Afternoon News will be there with McCure. And then also, um, you know, our, our Sports Central broadcast as well. So, you know, we're going to have a huge presence. We're giving away the free ride vehicle the last night of Summerfest. That's going to be exciting and fun as well. But, um, Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. What makes Summerfest special, and what is what makes Summerfest special, and you know what's your best Summerfest memory? 
Let's have some fun. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Your favorite Summerfest memory. Maybe it was a show you saw. Maybe, hey, I was down there, and this is where I met the man or the woman that I was going to be with for the rest of my life. Maybe this was the time where we had the reunion. Your favorite Summerfest memory. Let's start with Phyllis in Milwaukee. Phyllis, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Phyllis. I'm very, I love Summerfest, and I was at every Summerfest, but my reason for calling is my husband um, is a musician, Warren Wheatgrass. Oh, street life and all. Yeah, got it. And oceans and right. wheat bottom and, <laughs> right. and the freeloaders and all of them. But uh, Warren has played every single Summerfest, every, all 50 of them. Wow. What uh, do you know? When yeah. is, when is he performing this year? Do you know? This Obviously, year he is performing on the seventh of July. Okay. at the BMO Harris at six p.m. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah. So, do do you go and watch all the shows? Oh yes. Oh yes. I love to. I love to watch the shows. There's always something different that's happening, and there's always interesting people around. Um, there are always interesting people. Okay. Putting aside the shows you see that your husband performs in, so okay, we're we're gonna, you're biased, so we're going to take him out of that that account. Um, what's the best show you ever saw at Summerfest? I think I would say uh, Stevie Wonder. Oh, okay, yeah, a lot, yeah, that that's just amazing. Well, Phyllis, the thank- very last, the very very last show of Stevie Wonder was incredible. That's it. Well, Phyllis, um, I am a big fan of your husband's. I think he knows that. So say hi to him for me, okay? Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Warren Wegratz, I mean, just um, you know, street life, you know, playing at the Bucks games and just uh, see that's see, that's the other cool thing to me about Summerfest is that it is given it provides a vehicle for lots of you, you've got the national acts, you've got the nostalgia acts. But Summerfest, you know, provides a vehicle for lots of local bands and lots of local performers as well, and that can't be discounted. Okay, your favorite Summerfest memory, 414-799-1620. Debbie in Menominee Falls. Debbie, good morning. You're in 620 WTMJ. Morning. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, ma'am. After I was talking to your producer, I thought of a couple more, but my first one was the first Summerfest I ever went to, which was... I don't know, in the 70s, and it was on the other side of the War Memorial, and it was free. Okay. It was Bobby Sherman. <laughs> That's a name from the past. <laughs> I, the teen, the teen throb Bobby Sherman. Um, remember right. the TV show he was in, uh, Seven Brides, like, something like, it was like three, uh, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Seven it, was brothers. A, it was a knockoff of that movie or whatever, yeah. Right. But one of my favorite ones was um, back in the 80s, they used to have a big band stage. And they had, like, um, swing dance and ballroom dance and these right. demonstrations, and that was absolutely great. We loved that. I don't go that much anymore. I'm not into the music that's played now. So yeah. I don't think I've gone in 20 years. But. Yeah, well, but I tell you, it's, I mean, thanks, it's, it's still worth checking it out. I mean, I um, as I get... As I get older, I, I have less and less of a tolerance for crowds. But even so, there, there's always something. I mean, when 
when I was doing the show from noon to three, what I would often do is I would I would hang around for a while um, because a lot of times you know you can still see a lot of good bands that are out there. Maybe not the biggest headliners. I mean, look, the truth is, if you're going to go down on a Thursday or Friday night at ten o'clock, the place is going to be packed and you're going to be standing on picnic tables and things like that. But it's much less crowded, you know, in the afternoons, and you can still see some really entertaining bands. And it's just it's a lot of fun. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Sarah and Delafield texts my first ever concert and my first ever experience at Summerfest was Three Dog Night and I instantly fell in love. I went with a girlfriend and her parents. Uh, let's see. I will not include this person's name. I love Summerfest, but I work for Anheuser-Busch. Can't even drink uh, the beer there. Still, it is always a good time. Um, let's see. Dan texts, watching the band shortly before the last waltz. Yeah. Some of my, I mean, I've got a lot of great memories. I mean, I remember, I'm a huge fan of John Prine, who's just classic Americana. But Steve Goodman, who, the late, great Steve Goodman, who passed away a long time ago from leukemia, Chicago singer-songwriter, he and John Prine used to do, I mean, they used to do these performances together, and they'd alternate as to who was going to open up and who would be first and who would be second. I'm telling you, I can remember those shows. Coldest I have ever been. Gosh, this goes back goes back to the early 1980s. Coldest I have ever been was on the 4th of July. We were out with my, my, friend, my friend Steve. His uncle had a cottage on Pewaukee Lake. We're floating around in inner tubes, you know, get a bunch of sunburn working, all that type of stuff. Go down to see John Prine and Steve Goodman, and the wind shifts, um, as it often does. And it goes from, like, 80 degrees and sunny to... 50 degrees, you know, with, you know, the windshield, like, takes it down into the 40s. Honest to goodness. (laughs) I don't think I've ever been colder. Um, Tom in West Bend. Tom, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hey, Jeff. I'm in my early 60s now, but, like, 1971, I, when I was, like, 15, I drove down by myself because Gordon Lightfoot was playing, and I was a big Gordon Lightfoot fan. Really enjoyed that, just sitting there by myself listening to uh, He had just come out with, I think, Sundown. Oh, right. And, and uh, it was just an awesome concert. So. Yeah, it's, it, I mean, I think it, that's, that's the cool thing about Summerfest. So very, very accessible. Here come the brides. Yes, Mitch reminds me. that was It was a knockoff of the movie Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. But, yes, here come the brides with teenage heartthrob Bobby Sherman. All right, 414-799-1620. All right, your best Summerfest Memory. It's eleven fifty. Jeff Wagner, six twenty. WTMJ Hondo, who's producing the show today and always. We're talking about Summerfest memories. I I have a friend of mine who's probably listening right now, going, "I hope he's not going to tell the story about the night I, being his friend, got arrested at Summerfest, and me, being Jeff, had to go try to figure out a way to bail him out." No, I'm not going to tell that story today. But it was, it's just, it's just a. It's just, again, one of the legendary, one of those kind of legendary stories. Um, Mike sends me a text. I used to go to Summerfest for the carnival rides and the Midway. I don't go anymore. Um, they, they don't, doesn't make any sense. They took them out. See, I disagree with you, Mike. I think the Midway was nothing but trouble. And um, it was, actually, I, I've talked to Don Smiley about this. Um, in certain years, the, the goal at Summerfest, some, under Bo Black, and I, I like Bo a lot, but it always used to be, let's see if we can get a million people in there. Well, all right, the, the problem is the grounds really can't handle that many people. And if if what you're going to be doing is bringing a bunch of 17-year-olds in who are just going to be running around trying to figure out a way to, you know, drink underage, 
that that kind of ruins everybody's fun. So, I mean, I think you need a critical mass, but at the same time, I, I, I'm glad they got rid of the midway. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to uh, Jerry in Waukesha. Jerry, your favorite Summerfest experience. Good morning. Uh, uh, good morning, Jeff. I enjoyed listening to your show. Thank Hands you. down, it was Jimi Hendrix. A close second will be Sly and the Family Stones. I remember that like it was yesterday. It was hot and humid. And I think they were staying at the bistro and they wanted watermelon broth for the whole double. And Danny was late coming up, uh, coming to some of his performance. But the Jimi Hendrix, uh, the stage was down towards the War Memorial. It was mud and soul right. and gravel. Right. And, and it was one of the best concerts I've ever seen in my life. And I've seen concerts all over the world when I was in the military and everything. And hands down, Jimi Hendrix. Right. And it, right. I mean, and of course, that, that's it. I mean, for, for, for people who grew up with the Marcus Amphitheater, and now the Marcus Amphitheater is old. They're going to be, you know, re- revising that or rebuilding it or building a new one or whatever. And, and now they call it the um, American Family Amphitheater. But, but I mean, it just, the old main stage was on the north end of the grounds. And, again, it was it, there, it was mud and it was grass and it was gravel and it was bleachers. Um, it, it was just – it was – not the necessarily the best way to see a show, but it, it was also it was free. I mean, there weren't there weren't you know you didn't have to buy extra tickets. Um, let's see. Um, Mark writes, I was also at Humble Pie. That was actually kind of a scary night. I remember looking back, and there were all these people sitting on beer tents, uh, seeing seeing Stevie Ray Vaughan half half dozen times on the side stages was incredible. Um, let's see. Justin writes, I remember Summerfest '70, the very first one on the current grounds. I was not there that year, where I saw. Um, um, my mom, uh, where I saw, I was with my mom, one of the very last performances of Mahalia Jackson on a trailer stage amidst mud and portageons and food trucks and trailers and abandoned uh, barracks on the former airport Nike mi- mi- Missile Base. What humble beginnings. Yeah, that's um, um, just, it's just amazing. And, and that's, that's what is so special about uh, Summerfest. Is it uh, Margie in Elkhart Lake? Good morning. Good morning. Okay, best Summerfest memory. Well, it was 36 years ago. I was at the Tony Bennett concert. Okay. And I met a handsome gentleman by the name of Charlie, <laughs> and he's been my husband for 31 years. What a cool... Okay, so the two of you got together at the Summerfest concert. What What was his pickup line? Do you remember? <laughs> <laughs> Well, he was he was real casual and good looking and, uh-huh. and wasn't pushy and I kind of liked that. Uh-huh. Um, and so we enjoyed each other's company for a bit. And then the next night, I was down there again with a girlfriend, and we were watching Peter, Paul, and Mary. Okay. And who come who comes strolling up but Charlie? Uh huh. And and so uh, it was kind of fate, and I didn't let him go. Okay. Well, let me ask you this: did, did it, Was it was it just fate that you bumped into each other, or did you kind of like drop that hint that you were coming back the next night? No, I had not told him. Oh. I don't believe it was meant. To, was it, was meant to, it was meant. It was meant to be. It was definitely meant to be. Yes, well, congr- congratulations on thirty-six <laughs> years together and thirty-one years of marriage, huh? You bet. All right, that's that <laughs> we'll, is. That, we'll, be de- we'll be down there tomorrow. Oh, that, <laughs> thanks. See, see, lo- that's what a great story. I mean, I and I, I know that there's just a ton of stories like that. Uh, maybe during the course of the run of Summerfest, we, we can revisit this. Right now, I, I'm kind of up against the clock. We've got Scafidi and Bill Stett coming up. We'll find out what they have on their minds in just a minute.